All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As we continue our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. And again, our passage this morning will be verses 6 to 12. Now, I originally was going to go to verse 19. And then it was too much for me, so I decided we'd go to 12. So I cut the sermon in half, so that that might be good news for some of you, but we'll see how it goes this morning. All right, beginning at verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be one to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we go through our passage this morning. Heavenly Father, again, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher and that he would reveal the truths of your word to our hearts. I pray that he would protect your word and nothing that is in error would be heard. And so I pray this morning that your church will be built as we again go through your word and we recognize what you are teaching in this passage again be in our time build your church i pray in your name amen well we have been dealing with first corinthians in this whole section really with we were talking we were been talking about the assembly in other words everything that has to do with us coming together in the assembly and the importance of being together and we've been talking about spiritual gifts and how spiritual gifts have been given to individuals and yet the individuals are to be part of a greater whole and that all of the gifts are necessary and yet there are some that we find are better for edification for the church and that is the purpose of the church of i mean of not of the church of the gifts is the edification of the church he says in 12 verse 7 they are given for the common good and so we must recognize that all spiritual gifts are given for the common good for the edification the building up of that body And so he said in chapter 13, but just wait a minute, I want to make sure that you recognize that the supreme thing is love. In other words, you must exercise your spiritual gifts in love. And the expression of love comes through spiritual gifts. In other words, you must express that love 
through the in the exercise of spiritual gifts, and yet you must recognize that love is the supreme thing above even spiritual gifts. And so we saw the preeminence in the beginning of chapter 13 of, these, of love. Then we saw actually the perfections of love. We saw what love actually was. We saw all of the little pieces, and we saw that ver love was actually a verb. It's not a noun. It's a verb. In other words, it, it's something that goes out in actions to others. It's not enough to be, to be kind. You actually have to do acts of kindness, right? You, it actually expresses itself as it goes forth. And then we saw the permanence of love. It is the only virtue really that lasts into eternity is love. It continues all the way through eternity. And then we said that when we came to chapter 14, we, we kind of took a left turn here because Paul has been really giving no commands. He gave us one imperative at the end of, or one command at the end of chapter 12. He says, earnestly desire the greater gifts, right? He went through all chapter 13 without one single command for you what you should do. And all of a sudden he gets to chapter 14 and he starts to give commands. In other words, he's now focusing in on the problem that the Corinthians have. He's now like a laser beam saying, okay, I've set the groundwork for everything. Now we're going to talk about your problem. Your problem is you guys are edifying or you guys are putting tongues to the very top. This is what you are holding as the greatest spiritual virtue and the, the thing of most value. And you are coming together as a congregation and that's what you are uplifting. This is what you think is the greatest display of, of the spirit. And he says, you're doing it not because you want the Holy Spirit to be edified and you're not doing it because you want the church to be edified. You're doing it because you, it's making you look good. And so Paul begins this section in chapter 14. And he says, pursue love. That's the greatest virtue. I've just told you that. That's, all, every, that's that greater way that he started with at the end of chapter 12. I will show you a more excellent way, love. But don't forget, just in case you get all carried away with chasing love, but also pursue. It's not as important, but it, it, you must pursue spiritual gifts. Be earnestly desire them. And then he says, I want to narrow it down just to make sure you know what I'm talking about. I want you to pursue prophecy. And again, he says, I want you to pursue prophecy because I, I, in that list of spiritual gifts at the end of chapter 12, I said that it was one of the most important gift really that's left at this point. There are teachers. And then he says, there are those who prophesy. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? In other words, he lists this right after apostleship. And he says the most important thing for the church is prophecy. And he says, I want, it, I want you to know that prophecy is superior to tongues because it is something that people can understand. In other words, tongues is great if it's interpreted, but it is prophecy is superior. It is something that people can actually grasp, something they can understand. And so he said, it actually speaks to people. When you speak in tongues and no one interprets, he says you speak to God. In other words, God's the only one who understands what you're saying. 
And when you're speaking in a tongue by the Holy Spirit and God's giving you that, God doesn't need that message. He's, he's the one sending it. So why do you need to speak it back to him? He says, the one who speaks in tongues edifies himself. He doesn't edify the church. He, he just lifts himself up because all people just see him speaking, but they don't understand what he's saying. Tongues can't edify, not unless they're interpreted. And so tongues are, are even, we would say, inferior to prophecy because you need someone to translate it. In other words, on its own, it's useless. Now, we know that speaking in tongues itself is, 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 a, is a gift of the Spirit. There's nothing wrong in, in, in the fact that there's something deficient with tongues. It's just it's, it's of no value unless it's interpreted. You need to interpret it. In other words, comprehension is necessary for edification. And that's his whole point. And this is the whole point that he's making through this whole section. Now remember, we're in the first century. Tongues are still going. Tongues are still something that is a first century gift that is still going. And it's, it's present in the church at Corinth. Now we went through chapter 13 and we saw, we saw and we, we, we looked and we saw that tongues have what ceased, they have ended. And I want to just preface this whole sermon with this idea. The arguments that we're going to make today about angelic languages and whether there's a private prayer language and all of that really are not relevant because if the gift is already finished, then even as we exegete this passage and demonstrate that what's going on here is not a private prayer language, it wouldn't even matter if it was because it's not applicable for today. Does that make sense? Because we, if we have already discovered that tongues have ceased, then what all of the arguments here ultimately are, for, are, are irrelevant for today as far as, as recognizing that even if it was so, even if there was a private prayer language, that ultimately it wouldn't be for today anyway. Now, we can still learn from this text though. And I want us to learn from this text. And so this morning, we want to ask ourselves as we deal with this text, are there such things as private tongues? Is there private languages where you can pray to God? And I would say to you right off the hop, no, there's not. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the conclusion right now. No, there's not. And the whole passage is actually speaking about a public display and that tongues are to be used for the edification publicly for the church, not privately. And his whole point is actually that it's worthless if it's not interpreted and it, if it doesn't edify the church. And in fact, I would say this. The only reason, the only reason that you would think that there was a private prayer language in this passage is because it has been read in 
by modern experience. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind, but we must speak the truth from the pulpit. There is nothing in this passage exegetically for the last 1900 years where the church has even in, in any way considered the fact that there was a private prayer language. In fact, when the modern phenomena of what so-called tongues began in 1901, Charles Partham and William Seymour are credited for the foundation of this. They were those who were teaching the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they said that it was a, a second blessing and it was a, a, a blessing of, for sanctification that ultimately was exhibited in speaking in tongues. Now, if if we remember in any of our Bible studies here, we recognize that baptism is what? The baptism of the Spirit was to place you in the body of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians tells us. It, you, are, you are baptized into the body. In other words, it is something that is positional. It is not something that is experiential. It's like getting married. You le have a new legal standing, but you don't change. And so you are placed into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ by the baptism of the Spirit. So right now, right away, we know that they are misusing what baptism is and they're looking for something that Scripture says is something else. And so they got together and they, uh, in 1900, in Topeka, Kansas, on January 1st, 1901, a student named Agnes Osman asked for a prayer of the laying of hands, specifically to ask God to fill her with the Holy Spirit. Now, she became the first of many uh, students to speak in what they would call tongues. Now, first of all, any I'm, I'm going to be very gentle. Any movement that is led by women, we have a problem. Second of all, they thought that they were speaking in Chinese. You can actually go online and find the scrawlings that they called that they thought was Chinese. It is not Chinese. There's no Chinese people who can read it. But what is significant is that they were looking and waiting because they believed, now wait for this, wait for this, they believed that what they were speaking in was in human languages. They thought that tongues was human language. They were expecting human language. In fact, they believed so strongly at the beginning of this movement that tongues was lang human languages. They sent missionaries to the foreign field to share the gospel because they understood the purpose of tongues was for unbelievers and they thought they could go to the mission field and that they could, without having to learn the language, share the gospel and reap a harvest. That's what they understood. 
But when they got to the field, what they found out is nobody understood them. And linguists were brought in and it was, they were really not speaking in any language at all. It was gibberish. Now at this point, what our mantra always is, put experience through scripture, not scripture through experience. At this point, they should have looked and realized that whatever was happening, they were not speaking in foreign languages. It was not the biblical description of tongues and they should have renounced it. If scripture does not endorse it, it must be put away. Experience must be put through the lens of scripture, not the other way around. But experience is strong and instead of getting, instead of getting rid of the experience, they said, guess what? Even though the church for 1900 years has read scripture a certain way, we're gonna go back to scripture to find how our experience fits. And now they began to read scripture through the lens of their experience and they went to find out what they could find. And so they come to a passage like this and they say, this just confirms our experience. We're gonna look at this scripture and we're gonna see that there are a great many kinds of languages. Oh, I think kind means that, that must leave it open because he talked about angelic tongues earlier. That must be it. And so they began to read, well, if, if it edifies, oh, it must, it must be a good thing. And if I pray without his mind, like he says later on, he says, if I play in my spirit without my mind, all of this just, just pointing to that though Paul isn't specifically meaning it, he's opening the door for these things. And again, you have to put away everything that we know about tongues that has been understood in order to take that point of view. And you have to read the experience into scripture. And even what Paul is doing here is completely, completely against the idea of a individual using his spiritual gift for his own benefit and his own edification. And it's, it's like picking pieces out of an argument that's going in the wrong direction and still trying to pick pieces out of the, for a different side. You're actually doing destruction to the word of God and you're not being true to the purpose for which Paul is writing. Now, Paul also is very big on understanding. In other words, Edification only comes through the mind. It only comes through the mind. And scripture from beginning to end is exactly that. When God spoke to, to Abraham, he didn't speak spirit to spirit. He spoke to him. Adam replied to God. Again, the communion that went, went on even in the garden was what? Thought and verbal. It wasn't as if God, even Adam in his perfect state, 
wasn't being downloaded spiritually through his spirit. He was being downloaded through his mind. Adam, do this. Adam, do that. And so it has been through the instruction of Scripture all the way along. It is through your mind that God's truth is placed in you. God gave the Ten Commandments. Why? Because you need to think on them. David said, I will what? He said, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought thee. I will let... Let me not wander from your commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord. Teach me thy statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of my mouth. I will rejoice in the ways of your testimonies as much as all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. How did David try to please God? How did David try to get close to God? How did he have a relationship through God? Through meditating on his precepts. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, Romans 12, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good. How do you prove something? You're going to have to use thoughts. You're going to have to use logic. You're going to have to have your mind engaged. What is the good and acceptable, perfect will of God? Christianity is always to the mind. Finally, brethren, whatsoever is things that are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. If there's any virtue, if there is be any what? Praise, think on these things. In other words, praise comes as a result of what? Knowledge. Praise isn't some emotion that just flows out of you. Praise, true praise always comes from knowledge. Now, knowledge produces emotions, you betcha. It produces praise, but it is always based on knowledge. And that's why we sing songs that are full of good theology. Why? Because the only way for you to worship God is is not to sing loudly, but to sing from a heart that is responding to God's truth. That's true praise. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singings and grace in your hearts to the Lord, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. How do you come to maturity in Christ? Through the word of God, through your mind. We look at Paul when he comes to Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. Listen to this. 
But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Now he says, we speak it. The wisdom which comes, none of the rulers of this age have understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 10, for to us, God has revealed them through the spirit. There it is, say spirit to spirit, right? Well, wait a minute. For the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of men? For the spirit searches all things, I mean, except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except what? The spirit of God. Thoughts. Again, we're going back to the mind. <clears throat> now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the very things freely given to us by God, by which things we what? Speak. Words. You can't have words without thoughts. Words convey thoughts. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. There it is. You cannot, you cannot separate those two things. It goes to the what? To the mind. Right? Your brain is useless if it doesn't have any thoughts. Can you separate your brain from your thoughts? You can't. And so Paul wants, it, the, the whole emphasis of Scripture is that in order for you to be built up spiritually, you must engage your mind. There is no value in having an empty mind. And so Paul says, listen, the whole tenor of Scripture, everything about the Holy Spirit, even as He comes, is to what? Give you truth. Now listen, when Jesus Christ gave the Holy Spirit, and He was speaking specifically to the disciples here, but He was, he, he was giving the Word of God for a purpose. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send you in my name, He will teach you all things... How is he going to do that? And bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit's not downloading some sort of spiritual experience to you. He is actually going to teach you the things that Jesus taught. Where are you going to find the things that Jesus taught? In Scripture, right? In Scripture. So we have preambled a long time here. And you're thinking, Pastor, I thought you were going to preach out of the text. Well, we're going to get there. And really this morning, as we look at this text then, Paul is going to emphasize the necessity of understanding for edification. You need to understand. Comprehension is necessary for edification. The way to edification is through the mind. And so this morning, we're going to say three things about comprehension that should help us understand the necessity of it for edification. First, 
he will just he will he will assert it in verse 6 he will give us three illustrations and then he will apply it at the end and so this morning we should understand very clearly the only way to be edified is ultimately through comprehension you cannot be edified apart from it and really, he, as he goes through 6 to 12, he's really just really explaining everything that he told, told you about tongues in verses 1 to 5. 1 to 5, he says, tongues are inferior because they can't be comprehended. People don't understand. You're only speaking to God. And now he says, here, let me illustrate it for you. Let me show you that it's necessary to have comprehension for edification and so the whole point of this illustration is the point that you need to understand not to say hey maybe there's a maybe there's actually a room for us to have non-comprehension that sounds more like the pagan religions that we talked about at the beginning of chapter 12 who had no mind at all who spoke gibberish in fact that is the mark of eastern religion empty your mind to worship Christianity is actually the absolute opposite. Fill it, fill it with the truth of the word of God. Well, he begins here and he, he says the necess necessity of comprehension asserted. He says in verse six, but now brethren, and Paul, he has just really began to chop the Corinthians at the knees. He has, he's, he has gone right after the thing that they have gloried in, the thing that they have had the most pride in, and he has chopped them at the knees. And so he says, but now my brethren, now brethren, he's softening it up a little bit here. And you'll see him start to t use himself as an illustration because he understands that the Corinthians at this point are probably smarting a little bit. And so he comes with a bit of compassion. And now he sets up really a, what we would call a hypothetical visit. If I come to you speaking in tongues, what will it profit you? And so he continues with this idea. He says, if I came to Corinth... And you would expect that as the apostle comes, there's going to be a lot of edification and teaching. And he says, if I come to you... Speaking in tongues, what would it profit you? And the answer should be nothing at all. Nothing at all. Because even Paul in his apostolic office, if he spoke in tongues without interpretation, it would be what? Of no value. It would be nothing for edification because he would be what? Speaking to God. In other words, only God would understand. Nobody would comprehend. Well, Paul describes how he did come in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When he came to them, it says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. In other words, when I came, if we're going to anglicize this, when Pastor Tony came to preach to you, he didn't use big words. He just spoke plainly to you. 
That's what Paul's saying. I came to you. I didn't use high flutin words. I didn't use great rational arguments. I just came and I spoke to you. I spoke to you so you could understand and that we could communicate. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. I didn't try to, to use all kinds of fancy arguments to get you. But in a demonstration of the power of the Spirit and of power. In other words, it was the Holy Spirit that took what I said, and it was the power of the word and the truth that got you, not the way I delivered it. What was the result? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of, God, of men, but on the power of God. In other words, it, it is God who worked in you to do it. So Paul, even Paul, when he came, he came to the Corinthians, not speaking in tongues, but, but in plain language. This is the way I came to you. And so Paul says, but brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless? And at this point, you should be saying, unless what? It's interpreted, right? Is that what? But that's not where Paul goes. That's not where Paul goes. He should be saying, unless it's what? Interpreted, but he doesn't. He says, unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching. Paul's starting to show you what he values for edification for the church. You see that? He doesn't say, unless it's interpreted. Unless I speak to you, what pro will it profit you unless what? I speak to you either in way of revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. In other words, here are four other ways that I know that will bring maximum edification to the church and it's not dependent on someone interpreting it. And I want you to notice that each one of these ways is a way that appeals to the mind. See that? Each one of them is comprehensible by the person in the pew. The person in the audience, the one that he is speaking to. And so he says, I, I come to you by revelation and probably is speaking here of the word of wisdom. The supernatural ability to give a direct word from the Lord to guide the local church in a specific decision. This was a revelatory gift because it was connected with knowledge and linked with prophecy in 13.8. So he says, if I come and I give you a direct word from the Lord to guide the local church that's given to me by the Lord, I'm speaking to you and I'm speaking to you. And, and uh, in Corinth, and I would say here in Bowmanville, I'm speaking to you in English. We speak English, I'm speaking to you in English, and you would understand it. He says, I can speak in a word of knowledge, the supernatural ability to communicate a direct word of insight from the Lord to guide the local church in understanding prophecy. So he says, I can come to you and I will give you a word of knowledge. And again, I am just speaking to you 
in the language that you understand. The person in the pew would understand it because it's directly given and it is given in the language. Prophecy, the supernatural ministry of receiving and communicating direct verbal revelation from God. Right? Again, spoken to you, and this is what he talked about prophecy being what superior to tongues. Why? Because you can understand it. I'm speaking straight to you. Or teaching. The ability to clearly explain and apply the scriptures to other Christians. The teaching finds its basis in the divinely imparted knowledge. In other words, its teaching is dependent on the others. And he says, if I come to you in these ways and teach, you will understand. In other words, you will, you, you will comprehend them. And then there will be what? Edification. And so he says, I am coming to you in that way. I, if I was to come, the only way that would profit you is if I actually spoke in ways that you understood. And each one of these, if I spoke in any one of these and gave them to you, it would edify you because it would give you truth. It would give you guidance and you would have a better comprehension of God's truth. And again, truth is necessary for being built up. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In other words, that he might come to full grownness, that he might have, there's nothing lacking in him because he has grown into Christ-likeness. And so he says, this is the way that you come to maturity. This is how you're built up, is through the word of God. And he says, when I communicate a prophecy and I'm giving you a word from God and you are being taught on the truths of what God has revealed, you will be edified. Tongues, on the other hand, needs an interpretation. But it is necessary to understand in order for it to be edified. So the question might, you might have in your mind is, why do people want to speak in a private language anyway? What, what do you get out of it? Well, for many, people are wanting an experience with God. They're wanting to actually have an experience. They want to have something that they can feel like they're close to God. They want to, they want to, they want to have something that, that, again, affirms them in their relationship with God. And it makes them feel good. But again, as we've been talking about, the only way to know God and the only way to actually be close to God is to what? Know his word. It is the word that produces Christ-likeness. And if you want to be, if you want assurance of your salvation and you want your walk with God, then you have to know him through the pages of scripture because you have to know who you are what? Worshiping. 
And the more that you see God in the pages of scripture, the more that he will move your heart and you will have emotions. But it is, it, we can't have the tail wagging the dog. Emotions do not mean anything unless they are produced through the truth of the word of God. And so people go chasing after an experience and they, they leave out the only means by which they actually can experience a relationship with God and that's the truth of his word. And of course, we're talking about believers here, but the only way you can experience a relationship with God is through what? The word of God. And so people chase an experience and they leave the very thing that can produce in them a relationship with God, a deep relationship. You have to know scripture and it must come through that way. Well, he continues on and he now illustrates the necessity of comprehension through three illustrations. He begins in verse seven, yet even lifeless things inanimate objects, either a flute or a harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in tone, how will you know what is played on the flute or the harp? So he picks two musical instruments that would be very familiar to them. Uh, the harp, a stringed instrument. The flute, a wind instrument. These were most common instruments at banquets, funeral, religious ceremonies of the day. And though they were soulless, lifeless, inanimate instruments, they were, in most cases, known for their beautiful music or the moods of joy or sorrow created by them. But in order for them to do that, they needed to produce a sound, and in in a sense, they needed to produce a melody. And you all know the power of music. You, you, you walk down, you walk into a store, and the music changes, and and your step changes. Sorry, I think I hurt my hip right thing like it, it affects you right you you now I assume that no one in Bowling Baptist Church watches movie or television but you've all been in wa- watching movie and televisions and the music changes right and next thing you know you're pulling your feet up and you're putting it on the on the top right because you know something's coming because the the music is putting a tone it's and there's a there's a something to follow right you sing songs, some of us, most of us on tune, right? We, we, have, we recognize the tune and, and, the, and so we sing the words. But he says an instrument that doesn't play a tune is really, is, is really useless. If it doesn't produce a distinct t- uh, tone, how will you know what is played? You can't sing along to something that's got no melody, right? I mean, we've all had that experience, right? Where after, after church or at home, where the little kids come up and they get onto the piano and they decide they're going to play, right? And the next thing you have a concert of something you want to forget, right? It's just great on you, bang, bang, bang on the piano and you don't, you don't know what it, there's no tune, it's just noise. And pretty soon you're like, stop that, right? And I think the application is pretty clear unless there is a tone and a rhythm in music, 
it means nothing. So too, if you speak in tongues and no one understands it, it's the same thing. It's just, it's just a bunch of white noise. You can't follow along. You can follow along in a tune, but you cannot follow along in something that's just being banged and crashed. There has to be a variation of sound. There has to be a proper melody. And so if there's no recognizable melody, nobody's going to start to hop along to it. Nobody's going to sing along to it. Nobody's going to be moved by it. It's just going to be noise. And he says, that's the same thing with tongues without interpretation. They don't edify. In fact, they just annoy. And so Paul, wanting to make sure that we understand this, now illustrates it again with the bugle. He says, for further explanation of what I've just said, if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? The military trumpet was a lot like what we see today, a, a straight horn with no ability to change the tune outside of how you played it. There was no buttons on it. Probably not the technical term for that, is it? <laughs> but like the modern military bugle, it didn't have valves. There we go. And it was, play, it was a long straight piece of metal and the only way for you to change it was to the way you played it and the shortness, the longness of, of the notes. And he says it was played often for, for, for different, it had different calls. So it, it signaled mustard, alarm, ambush, pursuit, reassembly, enlistment, encampment, battle formation, funeral, retreat, homecoming. So it had different tones. But you can imagine if the enemy is coming and, and you need to assemble the troops and you get out there and you, and you start playing jingle bells on it, right? What are the soldiers gonna do, right? Roll over, go back to sleep, shut up, right? Oh, can't say that, right? There, there, there's just gonna be no response. What do we do? Confusion. Nobody's going to get ready for battle because they don't know what to do. All they hear is some indistinct noise. They don't know what it is. And he says that's the same way with tongues. When you speak in tongues and nobody understands it, he says it's like, it's like a bugle that's giving a call that nobody knows what it is. Everyone's confused. The soldiers are all running in, in circles. And he says everyone who listens is going in circles. They don't know what's going on. And so the answer to the question is, will he prepare himself for battle? Absolutely not. That's not the battle cry. Why would he? And so the futility of blowing the horn without a distinct sound is the same as speaking in a language that no one understands. He says in verse 9, so also you, applying the principle to the Corinthians, unless you utter by tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known? In other words, unless you utter 
and speak in a language to people that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? People won't understand you. You can speak as much as you want in a foreign language. No one will understand you. For you will be speaking into the air. You may as well be just having your, your words whipped by the wind and nobody can hear them because nobody can understand them. There's a, no value happening here at all. You could say this is synonymous with verse 2. For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands Right? No one understands. He's just, you may as well be just speaking into the wind. And so tongues without interpretations, without interpretations were obviously unrecognizable, unclear, and indistinct. And not just useless, but really a complete distraction. And by the way, if you think about it, this really rules out modern day counterfeit tongues. Speaking meaningless sounds into the air, sounds that bear no objective interpretation is useless. Now the response might be at that point, well, it's a private prayer. It is not intended for the corporate gathering. But the problem is the notion of private prayer language is alien to this section. This section is dealing with the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It knows nothing of a private gift used for personal edification. This section is entirely about spiritual gifts given to the body of Christ for the building up of the whole body. It's just foreign. And so he says, if you're, you may as well be speaking into the air. And then he says he illustrates it the third time by human languages. There, there are perhaps a great many of languages in the world and no kind is without meaning. He, he says there, there are, are, are a great number, an indefinite high number of languages in the world. And he says of different kinds Again, he's just saying there are many different languages is really what he's saying. Kinds here doesn't mean there's difference. There's a difference like a human language and a dog language and, and an angel language. He's just saying there are many different kinds of human languages. And he says there's many in the world. In fact, we know that there's over 6,500 languages in the world right now that, that we know of. I don't know if everyone's counted all of them. We know languages change, so who knows, right? Over 2,000 of those languages have less than 1,000 people that speak them. It's quite, quite, quite something. And of course, what, what language do you think is spoken most in the world? 1.3 billion Chinese, Mandarin, right? So you may have to learn that in eternity, I'm not sure, <laughs> right? 1.3 billion. But none of them is without meaning. And really, the idea of a language without meaning is preposterous because a language without meaning is not a language at all. As Robert Thomas says, no language was or is inarticulate. Every language has an essence that makes it an effective medium of communication. Otherwise, 
it would not be a language. It wouldn't be a language. So he says, there is many kinds of languages in the world and no kind without meaning. None of them has, does not communicate with people. None of them does not have meaning. Then he says in verse 11, if then I do, I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who is, speaks a barbarian and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Now this would be a familiar thing to the Corinthians. The Corinthians spoke Greek. They would have, and really they said that anybody who didn't speak Greek was a barbarian. It was kind of a, a put down but the idea was this. If I don't understand what you're saying and you don't want to understand what I'm saying, it would be like a Corinthian who spoke Greek but didn't speak another language having someone come to Corinth and speak to them. They're a barbarian. I don't know, I, you're just somebody from a different place. Probably they considered them less than, but the idea is we can't communicate. I'm a barbarian, you're a barbarian. There's no communication going on. The word barbarian is kind of onomatopoetic. In other words, it, it sounds like what it is. Buzz, zip, hiss. We have those kind of words. This is barbarose from the repetition of the sounds like bar, bar, bar. Right? Mwah, mwah, mwah is really what he's saying, right? And he's saying, you talked with someone in, if from a different language and all you're hearing is wah, 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 right? Have you ever tried communicating with someone in a foreign language? How did that go? You ever, you, you ever go to, on vacation? You go to a foreign country? You go to the restaurant, right? Most of the time, what do you end up doing? that one right there, right? You're pointing at the picture because you've tried to communicate, you've talked, right? You don't understand. It's just an exercise in frustration. You're just hoping you don't have to use the bathroom and ask for instructions, right? And so he's a barbarian to you, you're a barbarian to them. And he says, that is the same way with speaking in a tongue. It doesn't matter if you are speaking in a spirit-given language that of, of a human language, the ability to speak in a foreign language. If no one understands you, what good is it? You just may as well be barbarians to each other. And so Paul says, you're just not able to communicate with one another. It's just an exercise in frustration. It says in verse 11, and I think this is kind of neat. The word use for meaning, if it speaks meaning, is really the word for power. Literally, it is power. It is, I do not know the power of language. Language has power, the power to convey meaning. Meaning is powerful. And he says, if, 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 if I don't know the meaning of the language, I don't have the power to communicate. There's no power there. 
And he says, I will be one who speaks as a barbarian and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. There is no value. There's no communication. There's no power there because there's no ideas that are put forth and therefore no edification can come. It just simply can't be. Now you're going to hear a few people who say, well, wait a minute. Paul is illustrating tongues with a, with a real language and he's making a distinction here. And you never illustrate an illustration with the same information, right? Otherwise, it's not an illustration. It's like defining the word with the word that you're trying to define. It's big. What does big mean? Well, it's big. Well, that doesn't give anything. But Paul is not comparing apples to apples here. He is comparing a spirit-given ability to speak a foreign language to the ability to speak a learned language. They're not the same. And so it makes a powerful illustration. It doesn't take away from it, but rather points to the necessity of understanding. And so he says, if I speak in tongues, I'm, we will be a barbarian to one another. And then he applies the application of the understanding of edification. After pointing out the futility in these illustrations of not having any kind of understanding for edification, he says, so also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. In other words, he's been saying all along, I want you to recognize the necessity of comprehension and understanding for the edification of the church. And he says, you have been zealous for gifts, spiritual gifts. He says, you've been chasing after them. You, you've been wanting them. But he says, since you are zealous for those spiritual gifts... Seek to abound for the edification of the church. You can hear the echoes of what he's already taught when he told them earlier, earnestly desire what? The greater gifts. And the greater gifts, gifts were defined by what? Their ability to edify the church. And so he says, instead of chasing tongues, here's the application. Chase the spiritual gifts that bring edification to the church. That's what you're to do. You want to eliminate strife in the church. You want to have harmony in the church. Seek the things that build it. Instead of seeking the things that build you up, the things that make you greater, he says, seek those things that what? Build up the church. And so Paul says, the greatest way to edify is now to seek those greater gifts that edify the church. And he says, they come, the greater gifts are always those that produce knowledge in the church that ultimately bring understanding. Because it is truth. It is the truth of the word of God that renews the mind, that changes you. And so he says, if you're zealous, then seek to abound for the edification of the church. Do the things that ultimately build the church. 
And so there's a call to the church here. Listen, if we're going to build a church, it obviously comes through edification and and edification comes through understanding. And so we must seek the things in the church that ultimately promote the understanding of God's truth. And that has to be central to what the church does. And so if we're going to obey the commands of Christ, and if we're going to be, uh, and demonstrate our love for him, we must obey his commands. And if we're going to know what his commands are, that we have to find them in the word of God. And the Holy Spirit then works not through some mystical experience through my spirit, but he works through the word of God to convict you of the truth of it and so convince you of it that that now becomes your convictions and your character and you live that out in the freedom and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, go seek the spiritual gifts that build the church. And so let that be our goal every time we serve in the church. Is this best for the body? Not best for me, not best for my group, not best for my family, not what's best for my kids, but what is best for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, the church will be built. And so let us be those who pursue truth and understanding. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And again, this morning, I pray that you would convince us that you desire for us to know and that the only way that we can truly be built spiritually is through understanding spiritual truth. And that must run through our minds. So I pray that you would make us a church that zealously desires the greater gifts, that we would desire to build the church, not for our glory, but for yours. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.